0: Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ed, and I'm married to Hannah, and together we lead this church. Uh, You're very welcome. I'm going to get straight into it, because um, that's what I'm going to do. We're starting a whole new series today in the Book of Romans, Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans was one of uh, Paul's later letters, and whilst it, like all—it's a bit echoey, is that me— one, two, is that, is that right? Yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, so Paul um, wrote Romans, um, and like all of his ret- uh, letters, it is written to particular people at a particular time in a particular place about particular things particular to them. But Romans, more than probably any other piece of New Testament writing, also has this sense of being a kind of timeless manifesto. As one writer put it, it's the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the whole of the New Testament. It's why we have entitled this series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian Manifesto, and it's a manifesto towards freedom. Its message is not, as Rousseau suggested in his social contract, that man was born free and everywhere he is in chains, rather that human beings are, simply by dint of being human, born into chains, but Jesus has come to set us free. It's freedom from alienation from God, it's freedom from the prison of our own ego and brokenness, it's freedom from the fear of death, it's freedom at last from decay and disease, it's freedom from racial conflict, it's freedom to give ourselves in loving service to God and to other people, and with particular focus this morning, it's freedom from judgment, our own and God's. So there's a kind of clear progression in the letter. We start this morning with the opening chapters, what's wrong with us? Yep, lucky us. Uh, Then next week, uh, 5 to 7, what's God's solution to what's wrong with us? And then chapter 8, how does that solution actually work? And then for the remainder of the series, chapters 12 to 15, what does the change look like that God enacts in those who receive him in the life of the maturing believer? So this morning, happy times, what is wrong? Now, as far as we know, Paul wrote this letter while he was living in Corinth. It's written to two groups of Christians in the Roman church, a group of Jewish believers on the one hand and a group of Gentile believers on the other. And a rivalry has broken out. The Jewish Christians think themselves superior to the Gentiles in particular because of two things. One, because they are the ones who have received God's special law, marking them out as his people. And two, they didn't come from a ridiculous, as they see it, sort of idol-worshipping background. So they think they're better. But conversely, the Gentiles think they're superior because they say, well, we never had the law and all the problems that it potentially can cause and its burdensomeness, and therefore we're better off. And as you might guess, Paul does a double smackdown of both. First, he speaks to the Jewish Christians, even though all the treasures of Revelation have come through the Jewish people. That does not make you superior to the Gentiles. And then he does one to the Gentiles as well. Actually, not having had the law is of no real benefit to you. In fact, it probably makes things worse. But the whole point is, no one is better off than anyone else because we are all, every single one of us, Jew, Gentile, and anything else, which I don't think there is, but anyway, uh, Jew, Gentile, all of us are in desperate need of Jesus, his redemption, As uh, Paul sort of concludes in the early chapters, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So, that's the kind of overview this morning. I'm going to concentrate mainly on the second half of chapter 1, which we will read in a moment. But first, a couple of words of pastoral care. This is me being pastoral. This passage is probably the one that has most often been said to show that God really does not like homosexuality. So firstly, because of how two verses within the section of Romans that I'm about to read have often been received, I know, and I want to acknowledge this at the front, that this chapter has, for members of the LGBTQ community, caused extreme amounts of turmoil and suffering. I want to acknowledge that at the start. I have every sympathy with you if, even knowing that this passage is about to be read in church, is causing heart palpitations. My hope is that by the end of this little talk, at least those palpitations may well have receded, and perhaps this passage actually might bring some long overdue relief, peace, and joy even. Just as I think... Paul originally intended it to, a little spoiler alert, I don't think this passage has homosexuality as we understand it in view at all, as I hope to explain. It's about something completely different. But this is a contentious point, a point that many would disagree with, and I have respect for interpretations of this passage that are contrary to my own. I'm just convinced by this one. By which I mean, I believe that this is the closest um, original meaning to the text, uh, which is why I've landed on it. You may, be th- you may think otherwise, and that's okay. Should any of us, though, discover another interpretation which we consider then to be better than the one that we currently have, it is beholden on us to change our position, is it not? So, I suppose my point here, really, is the Bible is not something to be feared. It's a living, breathing book of reality to be wrestled with. As I said a few weeks ago, I believe that God is calling us as a church into deeper maturity. And part of what it means to be mature is to take responsibility for our own relationship with and interpretation of the Bible. Move from a sort of childlike view of it to understanding it with maturity. The Bible is chock full of the supreme authority of the one true God. The truth, unlike what the X-Files says, references to those born in the 1980s, the truth is not out there. The truth is here. All of it. It's him we are after. The truth is a person. So search for him everywhere you read and see how your relationship will with him, deepen to extraordinary levels." So that's first pastoral little word, second pastoral word. This is one of warning to those of us who are cis and straight. Any discussion of theology of sexuality in the Bible will for us most often be purely academic and an intellectual exercise, will it not? We can dig into the study of scripture with impartiality, knowing that whatever conclusions we draw will actually have very little impact on our lives. Perhaps friends and families might push back if they disagree with us. But that's about it, isn't it? It's why I think so many non-queer people We don't want to hear about this in church because it comes with it, the potential of upsetting our nice, comfortable status quo. What we don't always acknowledge is that it's only actually a comfortable status quo for us. For our queer Christian brothers and sisters, on the other hand, this isn't so much about hearing some interesting dialogue as whether or not God condemns their very personhood, whether they are forced to choose between unwanted lifelong celibacy or an unfaithfulness to God's plan, which may lead to them being shut out from God's kingdom forever and ever and ever. A little bit more serious, right? So I'm sure you'll see it's more than just someone unfollowing us on Instagram because of what we may believe, or sending us an article entitled, If you're a real Christian, you'll read this. (laughs) So can I say to cis straight people, including myself, let us take courage and be open to the debates. But let us do so with huge levels of grace and empathy. Surely, as Jesus would want us to do. Good. You didn't think this was coming this morning, did you? (laughs) To start with, let us all, LGBTQ or straight, check our presuppositions. By way of example, I want to use a controversial verse from this passage that I will be reading the whole of in a moment to make this point. In chapter 1, Paul begins his argument with this sort of lengthy description of pagan idolatry, what it leads to and what God's attitude is towards it. Within this section, Paul says this, verse 26 of chapter 1, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. For many people, this is as clear as day. The Bible is clear, they say. This is obviously about lesbianism and its prohibition. There's no question the Bible's clear. The problem is, it's not. It's not actually at all clear. In fact, for the first 400 years, not one biblical interpreter, considered Paul to be talking about lesbianism here, 400 years. That's 150 years more than the time between now and the Declaration of Independence. So for 1.6 times as long as this country has been called the United States, not one interpreter thought this was about lesbianism. For example, St. Augustine and Clement of Alexandria, both highly regarded biblical interpreters, straightforwardly interpreted this verse to mean women, and here I need to be a little bit careful, it's a family show. Uh, If you're under the age of 18, maybe block your ears, but they considered it to be women attaching an appendage to themselves in order to have sex with men. You can open your ears. Now, of course, Paul may well have had lesbianism in mind, but the point is, irrespective of which interpretation is closer to the original meaning, one thing is refutable, the Bible is not clear here. So let us be humble enough to accept that. The Bible is clear about lots and lots and lots of things, this particular verse just happens to not be one of them. Let us check our presuppositions. Okay, pastoral digression over. No longer am I going to be pastoral. (laughs) Having introduced himself and his letter, Paul gets right into it. Chapter 1, verse 14, let us start there. I am obligated, says Paul, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So far, so good. Let's carry on. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that what they do might... Sorry, so what... So that they do what ought not to be done. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve those who practice them. Let's pause there. How are we doing? It can be a lot. For many, this has always appeared to be Paul having a judgmental, screaming rant against the terrible, disgusting immorality of people. And people, you, me, others, have written themselves into this for centuries as object of his and therefore God's disgust. I want to suggest that there's a lot more to it than that. And Paul's primary purpose is not actually to beat up on pagan idolaters. Rather, his goal here is to expose something much more serious with those who are receiving the letter. In fact, Paul's argument in this first chapter only really works when we realize that what he is doing is actually setting up his hearers for a fall. He's the master rhetorician, bringing his audience along for the ride, only to hit them where it hurts, right at the culmination, a culmination we haven't yet read, but we'll come onto in a minute. Let me try to show you how this works. There is a Jewish text uh, called the Wisdom of Solomon, or the Book of Wisdom, which was written about 50 years before Jesus' birth, and around 100 years uh, before this letter of Paul. Its central theme is knowing God, the God of all wisdom. You are wise if you know God, and in it, there is an attack a brutal and very long-winded attack on Gentile idolatry, which casts it as the opposite of godly wisdom. Gentile idolatry is foolish and silly. The interesting point is that this attack is startlingly similar to Paul's language here in Romans 1. So let me give you a little bit of a taste. This is from chapter 13 and 14 of the Book of Wisdom. Yes, naturally stupid are all who are unaware of God, and who, from good things seen, have not been able to discover him who is, or, by studying the works, have not recognized the maker. But even so, they have no excuse. Rings any bells? Wretched are they, their hopes set on dead things, who have given the title of gods to human artifacts, gold and silver, skillfully worked figures of animals, or useless stone carved by some hand long ago. It's not enough, however, for them to have such misconceptions about God, living in the fierce warfare of ignorance, they call these things evil peace. Sorry, these terrible evils peace. With their child-murdering rites, their occult mysteries, or their frenzied orgies with outlandish customs, They no longer retain any purity in their lives or their marriages, one treacherously murdering another or wronging him by adultery. Everywhere, a welter of blood and murder, theft and fraud, corruption, treachery, riot, perjury, disturbance of decent people, forgetfulness of favors, pollution of souls, sins against nature, disorder in marriage, adultery and debauchery, for the worship of idols with no name is the beginning, cause, and the end of every evil. Do you see the similarities? Paul would most likely have been fairly familiar with this text, and so would his Jewish audience in Rome. And so can you see what he's doing here? Paul is preaching. He's referencing Jewish writing... He's reminding the Jewish part of the church about something they already know and that they probably quite like. And he's even adding his own little Pauline flourishes. Verse 26, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever to be praised. Amen? This is Pentecostal preacher Paul. Can I get a hallelujah? No, not you. What he's saying is, aren't we all together in this? Aren't we united in our dismissal and mockery of Gentile idolatry? You can almost imagine the Jewish faction in Rome hearing this letter read and getting more and more frothed up as Paul does an epic takedown of pagan morality. Yes, preach Paul. I knew you'd be with us. I knew you thought we were better than the Gentiles. I knew it. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise Jesus. Well done, Paul. He's dismissed ridiculous Gentile idol worship, verse 23, and then he's gone on to say that such ridiculous idol worship inevitably leads to a lot of things. Firstly, to sexual depravity. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for natural ones, in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. For Paul and his audience, none of this would have required much of a leap of imagination. These were exactly the sort of things that went on in and around pagan temples with all of their handcrafted little reptiles and birds and animals of idols. Throughout the Mediterranean world, this was the case. It was common knowledge that these idolatrous cultic practices would include, for instance, women dressing up as lustful, drunken, woodland gods like some sort of debauched Mr. Tumnus's, with goat tails and their aforementioned large appendages so that these goat women could be the ones doing the thinging rather than the ones being the ones thinged. The cult of Aphrodite had recently moved from Corinth, where Paul is writing to Rome, to to where the people are he's writing to. And in the largest of the Aphrodite temples, there were rumored to be a thousand temple prostitutes. There was a strong cross-dwelling element to these cults, and their rites involved orgiastic frenzies, where anything goes, resulting in some of those prostitutes in their frenzy, uh, many of whom would have been male, ending up, as they sort of frothed themselves up, into castrating themselves. Such castrated devotees would then wander around as festal eunuchs assumed to have magic powers and prophecy gifting. So when Paul says, these men have already received in themselves their due punishment, verse 27, it makes a lot of sense that what he has in mind is precisely this bizarre practice of self-castration. All of this to Paul and his audience is unnatural. These are heterosexual men and heterosexual women exchanging and abandoning their natural sexual proclivity for all sorts of bizarro, frenzied, pagan sexual pursuits. But it requires a leap for us, a leap which I suggest we would do well to resist, to expand this verse to refer to all homosexual behavior as if it is all unnatural to us now. Now, Paul may have thought exactly that. I think we just don't know. What is for certain, though, is that this passage does not address that question. We want to take the Bible seriously as good evangelical Christians, do we not? So let's take it seriously. To impose our modern day categories of homosexuality onto the ancient view of cultic pagan orgies is to do serious violence to the text as it is. The term homosexual was coined in German and then in English only at the end of the 19th century. That's a gap of 1800 years since Paul wrote this letter. So we would do well to be comfortable just leaving that gap open. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we've just got to let it say what it says. No less, but also no more. As you'll notice, I have not talked about marriage. I have not talked about sex in marriage. This for good reason. This passage does not address either of those topics at all. So, it would be reading too much into it to do so. The Bible does say stuff about sex and marriage. We just have to leave that for another talk, or you can listen to Hannah's dating course. So, back to Romans 1. Paul's Jewish audience would be feeling right up there with Paul in his polemic, all the more as he delves even deeper into where this exchange of the real God for idol worship results. In verse 29, Paul moves to far more serious matters than simply cultic orgies. These idolaters have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And again, the Jewish Christians faction's sense of superiority over their Gentile brothers and sisters would no doubt be felt to be entirely justified. But then Paul subtly changes tack. This idol worship also leads to something like gossip, verse 29, and verse 30, slander and arrogance and boastfulness, superiority, thinking you are better than someone else, thinking you because you were born Jewish are better than the Gentiles, or thinking you because you were born a Gentile are better than the Jewish people. It leads to idol worship, sorry, idol worship leads to no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And all of a sudden, it's those who've been whooping and hollering in agreement with Paul's earlier attacks, who may now have just begun to squirm just a little bit. He doesn't mean us, does he? Paul has them right where he wants them. But before he lands his killer blow, he returns to safer anti-pagan ground. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. And everyone lets out a sigh of relief, which seems to be where Paul pauses for breath. But whilst this is the end of the chapter, the chapters and verses were only put in during the Middle Ages in order to be able to order it better. For his letter, there were no chapters and verses. He may pause for breath there, but it's not the end of his argument. In order for any of this to make sense, we need to read on for one more verse. The end of the argument comes only when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and this is Paul's killer blow. Are you ready for it? You, therefore, and by that he means not just Jewish Christians, not just Gentile Christians, not just Christians, but every single member of the human race. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, of course, Paul is not accusing the Jewish faction in the church in Rome of doing the same things in terms of idol worship or cultic orgies. They obviously would never even dream of such a thing. What he is pointing out in them, though, is what he is pointing out in all of humanity, including himself. We've got a root problem, a brokenness and a corruption at the heart of things. And the root problem is our misdirected desire. None of us is immune And when our desire is misdirected, whether it be to this idol or that, this thing that we have just got to have, this person that we just must be, this career that we absolutely have to have, this money that needs to be ours, this sex that needs to be ours. That's right, Hannah's just dropped all of the mints all over the floor. She's feeling very... um, (laughs) (laughs) When our desire is misdirected, wherever it's misdirected, and wherever it's misdirected is whenever it is not directed at Jesus Christ. we will inevitably head down exactly the same path as the idol worshippers do so obviously and dramatically, towards malice and murder and gossip and no love and no fidelity and no mercy. Not even the law, which was good in and of itself, was able to redirect our distorted desire. And so, because our desire is so distorted, none of us is in a position to judge. We, unlike God, will always approach people from a position of a corrupted view. We're compromised and restricted in our vision. Jesus made this very clear himself. He said the Pharisee has no place judging the prostitute, and Paul Paul simply applies the same logic here. Neither has the Jewish Christian the Gentile Christian, or the Gentile Christian the Jewish Christian. So ultimately, what this passage is about is not really homosexuality at all. It's not even really about idol worship. It's about everyone's proclivity towards ungodly judgment. It's about what Augustine will later term original sin. It's about a distorted desire at the heart of things of every single human being. Given that, and given that we're here expecting Jesus to speak to us through his Bible, Will you let him speak to you right now in exactly the terms that he wants to speak? On what elements of your corrupted self is Jesus gently but firmly putting his finger? I was um, running this week. Uh, I run down Los Feliz Boulevard if you'd like to see me running. I, I'm there. <laughs> It's very public. As I was running, I came to a cross thing with a um, pedestrian crossing and lights. And um, the lights were red, and I was running, and just as I was approaching a car, went very fast to try and do a right turn, but then stopped suddenly. And the next car, who was going way too fast, came right up behind him and kind of blocked the pedestrian thing, so I had to, like, squeeze past. And as I arrived, I went (laughs) to the car and then i squeezed through and ran on and just as i was crossing i heard a beep, 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 and i looked around and the guy in the car rolled down his window and went <laughs> <laughs> and i went i the rage in me i was like i oh i cannot i was thinking if i run back He won't have moved. Even if he tries to open the door, I could slam it into his legs. His girlfriend's in the car. I could do a witty thing that she found funny that totally took it. I was thinking all of these things. And for the rest of the walk, I was just enraged going, I'm a pastor, don't react, don't react. What if someone sees you? Don't react. So angry, still angry. I um, I mentioned this to Hannah yesterday. I said, I'm going to tell this story. And she said, thinking that she'd be entirely on my side, that's such a good thing that he did, that guy. doing That's a brilliant, it's just a brilliant result. Like it just dials everything down, doesn't it? I was like, what? I just got more and more angry. (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't have tried to shame him, I know. Um, My point is, um, it was a shock to me quite how angry I got totally out of proportion and that's what Jesus has been putting his finger on in my life all week that's what I am trying to bring to the table this morning to let Jesus by his blood in his great mercy heal me because he doesn't want me to have that anymore What's he doing for you? Because aren't we all in so much need of Jesus' redemption? And isn't it so wonderful that that's what he offers? All the time, for any of us, without any obligation, completely freely. I think we should sing a song. Look, Ben, you're all the way up there. How long do you think it's going to take you to come back down? Should we do a slow hand clap? No. (laughs) I think we should sing that song again. Um, And what I want to do is to encourage you to have some courage and to open yourself to whatever Jesus might want to say whatever Jesus wants to free you from the story of the gospel is Jesus taking away our sin because he does not want us to have it anymore because it's not doing us any good so what I want you to do if you're able is to open yourself and you don't probably have to search around for it but what is Jesus saying and then let him take it away Let him set you free. That's what you're made for, freedom. That's what he's come to do. Good, good. Let's stand.